0: This week on the broadcast, I'm handing the microphone off over to my co-host, Randall Jacobs, who's got Anne-Mariah Rook on the broadcast. She's the North American editor at Cycling Weekly. Randall will take us on an exploration on how she got into cycling, and from there into cycling journalism, with fun tangents into competitive cycling, exploring e-bikes, and a bit of the gear nerdery that Randall is famous for before we jump in and hand that microphone off to randall i do need to thank this week's sponsor athletic greens athletic Greens and ag1 is a comprehensive daily nutrition made from simple powerful ingredients it's made up of 75 high quality whole food sourced ingredients carefully curated to nourish all the body's systems holistically as many of you know i've been an athletic greens user for many many years predating the podcast, so I've been super stoked that Athletic Greens is being a big partner for what I do. The key to AG1 is that it replaces key health products in one simple scoop. AG1 combines nine health products, working together as one, replacing your multivitamin, multiminerals, pre- and probiotics, immunity support, and more. That means AG1 does more for your body and saves you time, money, and confusion compared to taking multiple unique products. And that is 100% key for me. I do one scoop in the morning, mixed up with a little bit of ice, and I feel like I've got some of my nutritional bases started before I've even begun the day. If you're interested in learning more about Athletic Greens, go to www.athleticgreens.com slash thegravelride. For podcast listeners, our friends at Athletic Greens have given us a free year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs if you order today. Simply visit athleticgreens.com slash ride to get your AG1 on the way today. With that said, I'm going to hand over the microphone to my co-host, Randall Jacobs.
1: Let's talk about how you got into this particular field. How did you end up as a cycling journalist?
2: Sure, yeah. So I was actually uh, a real journalist before. Um, Not that cycling journalists aren't real journalists, but uh, I did a lot heavier topics um you know worked at newspapers just straight up out of college became a newspaper journalist and then uh, at some point I think I was 22 I started racing bikes myself and when I did I I was looking for content and I realized there wasn't a lot of women's second content coming out of the US so I started kind of dabbling with that on the side and uh, then start writing for some different publications and eventually cycling tips reached out and we're like, let's, let's do something. So we founded Ella cycling tips, which was the, the women's side of cycling tips. Mm-hmm. And then, um, yeah, this stayed in the field, I quit my day job and started doing cycling journalism while still racing. And I've been doing it ever since going on 10, 11 years now.
1: And was your educational background in writing in journalism specifically? Yeah, did I study? did uh,
2: journalism, German, and French. So, interestingly enough, I get to use all of that nowadays.
1: Are you native in any of those other languages?
2: In Dutch. So, I was born and raised in the Netherlands, the the back yeah. country, and then uh, lived in Germany for three years, and then ended up in the US uh, when I was almost sixteen.
1: That's quite a skill to have and makes me think of a joke about Americans. What do you call someone who speaks three languages, trilingual, two languages, bilingual, and one language? You have us Americans.
2: I think a lot of people actually do, you know, they dabble in Spanish and and some other languages. I think uh, you shouldn't sell yourself so short.
1: True. Maybe I'm projecting a little bit. In my personal case, I studied six years of Spanish in middle school and high Mm -hmm. school and was able to get by during a month stint in Peru, but it didn't seem immediately relevant at the time. And so later on in life, I moved to China and learned Mandarin and being present and having to use it in day-to-day life just makes such a a world of difference. And for, I think, a lot of people who are born in the US and who don't grow up in a household where another language is spoken, there's just not that, that impetus versus in Europe you have surrounding countries with with different languages or maybe even within one's own country there are different dialects or different languages being spoken.
2: That's really good though. So you're trilingual.
1: I wouldn't go as far as to say trilingual other than in the sense of trying a little bit of Spanish and enough what I call cab driver Cantonese in order to be able (laughs) to fool somebody that I speak some Cantonese before switching over to Mandarin.
2: That's. I mean, that's pretty impressive. Those are really difficult languages. I never studied uh, Cantonese or Mandarin. I, I studied Japanese and just having to learn a whole new mm. way of, of writing uh, is, is, yeah, it's difficult to do.
1: That's probably the hardest part. I would say that Mandarin, the script for sure, it's a very abstracted pictographic script. To be able to read a newspaper, you need two, 3,000 different characters. And to have a higher level of sophistication, you need 5,000, 10,000 characters. And even a native speaker, especially in this day and age, will have difficulty remembering how to write a character because everything is being tight. Hmm. But on the other hand, the grammar is really simple. Yeah. So in English, we say, yesterday I went to the store. And we have to go. And we conjugate it as went, which actually comes from an entirely different language family than to go. And in Chinese, you just say, I ah, yesterday go store. Ah, yeah. Yeah. English also has way more synonyms because it's such a hodgepodge amalgamation of other languages. Whereas Chinese also has external influences, but it's arguably more insular. Versus English, you have Germanic, you have Latin, you have Greek, you have various forms of cockney and so on that are all in there. And the occasional Chinese phrases, very little that comes over for Chinese. Uh, one example being long time no see, which is a direct translation from the Chinese.
2: Really? <laughs> Here's
1: the
2: thing I, I discovered with my language skills or lack thereof, is that um, learning all the bite parts, for example, I had mm. like, I never learned those in my native tongues. So like suddenly I had to learn like, Oh shit, what's the railer or what's what's the railer hanger in Dutch or in German or whatever. And it's been fun learning those terms for the first time, even though, yeah, I grew up with that language.
1: That's actually a common phenomenon and one that I definitely resonate in my own experience too. I have friends who were born in China, but largely grew up here or even who came over to go to college and native speakers. I'm not at that level, but I will have terms that I know that they don't because I am in this highly technical context of yeah. the bike industry, of manufacturing materials and production processes and so on. Um, and so it's kind of the same same sort of phenomenon.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of a fun thing where I was like, wow, I never learned any of these terms in those languages. Yeah.
1: So you've been doing cycling journalism for, you said about 10, 11 years now?
2: Yeah. Yeah, it's been a minute.
1: I'm curious to hear more about the project at Cycling Tips. How did you get brought into that, and and how did that come about?
2: So they, uh, I think they found me on Twitter. Uh, Twitter was really where um, women cycling was was living for quite a while because there was very little streaming, and you can watch any of these races live. So you followed them online, and Twitter had a really wonderful community of of women cycling fans, and it still does to a certain extent. But yeah, that's where it used to live and I did a lot of, you know, uh, I would watch races in life tweet and, you know, uh, was pretty active on on Twitter and um, was writing for Podium Cafe, which is a SB Nation site at the time. And they were looking to start a women's cycling component. Uh, And so they like reached out to various people and, you know, did a job interview and, you know, got going that way.
1: And this was when? Who was there at the time? Kaylee and James and... uh, No, this is before Kaylee.
2: Um, oh, okay. this was it was just, uh, Matt, the and, and Wade.
1: Oh, okay. Um, this is before Andy they'd... was
2: there already. And then it was Jesse Braverman and myself who came on to do the women's cycling bit.
1: Let's talk about women's cycling for a little bit. What are the areas in women's cycling that you find most interesting, most compelling, and that also you think that are maybe under discussed, under reported?
2: Cool. Yeah. The nice thing about it, women's cycling is that it's been growing so much in the last 10 years or so, so that it's. Uh, people get to see it a bit more, and I think what uh intrigued me about women's second from the get go is just how aggressive the racing is, and how um while there was a definite period of like Marion Vos dominating, and then we had Anne von der Breche and then we have Anne Mique, The nice thing about women's second, I think, is because it has grown so much, is that you never really know who's gonna win, and it makes the racing very exciting because it, it, like I said, it is so aggressive because the races are shorter. So you have fewer opportunities to make you know a break stick so there tends to be more attacking and uh you, you don't really experience that unless you're watching it i think the nice thing about where we are now we can actually watch in the tour de france femme showed this like watching women cycling is actually very entertaining and you know in france alone like millions of people tuned in every single day so it is it's different and i think that's uh, something we should celebrate rather than point out like you know women's cycling is is men's cycling but in shorter distances and that's not at all true i think women's cycling is a bit of its own sport in in terms of tactics and and the way the races play out and Mm -hmm. uh in cyclocross especially that's been very apparent you know people have shorter attention spans so if you can sit down for a, you know 45 50 minute bike race you'll see basically what women's cycling is like on a on a heightened level. And it's extremely entertaining. You don't know who's going to win. There's a lot of good candidates. And uh, it's, yeah, it's aggressive from the gun.
1: At least in the US, it seems that women's cyclocross racing was most prominent most early. Mary McConnell is one example I remember from my racing days. I don't remember hearing as much reporting about women's road racing at the time. Uh, maybe that was just what I was tuning into, but cyclocross. I remember getting similar billing to men's cyclocross.
2: Yeah, I think the the heyday of women's cycling really was the nineteen eighties, early nineties. You know, we had the Course Classic, and we had some some really great names, um, and that has dwindled down. There were a lot of lack of races. Uh, we've had some great road racers in the U.S. You know, with with, uh, Kristen Armstrong and. Uh, Evelyn mm-hmm. Stevens and we've had some really Mara Abbott and the Giro like some really great road racers you just don't hear about them as much I do remember <laughs> a particular race where I like looked to my right and it was like Christian Armstrong and I looked to my left and it was Evelyn Stevens and I was like ah oh, this is going to suck today <laughs> it's going <gonna laughs> mean, to be a it, nice one
1: let's talk about that let's talk about your racing background so you mentioned that you got into cycling in your early 20s how did that come about and what was that like for you
2: yeah, so I've uh, – coming from the Netherlands, I've been a bike commuter since I was, I don't know, six. Uh, and so mm. I just, like, grew up on the bike. It's just how I got around. And in college, I just rode everywhere. And there were a couple times where people were like, hey, you should maybe consider racing or, or doing, like, you know, Grand Founders or something. And I was like, ah, it's just my vehicle. And then uh, I moved to Seattle and did the Seattle to Portland, which is, uh, like, a 220-mile bike ride between the two cities and there were some teams that were doing it and uh you know again people were like have you considered racing like you're you're pretty strong and I'd be like no I mean it's kind of like hey do you like driving you should do NASCAR you know like it's it was just such a foreign concept to me um which is funny because I grew up in the Netherlands but like uh, and my grandpa was super into bike racing but it wasn't uh ever like exposed to me or like wasn't just like oh you like riding bikes you should become a bike racer it just wasn't a thing it wasn't really a, a sport I was exposed to uh in the northern part of the Netherlands and so I was kind of intrigued and and I had enjoyed training for the 200 mile event so I I went to the the tryout so to speak and start racing and as a cat four. And I remember my first race weekend was a double header. So Saturday and Sunday and Saturday, I, I think I got eighth and I got, I was like, oh, okay, this is cool. Top 10. And I was like, I wonder if I can get better. And the next day I got fifth and you know, that's, that's all it took for me to get super into it and trying to see where, where I could take it. And, uh, I think I was racing UCI like the next season, um, oh, wow. mostly, uh, mostly, or at first in cross and then, uh, road and track as well. But um, yeah, it's it's an interesting place to be in, in in the US in that you can be racing as a pro. And I use pro here very loosely because it's called pro level, but no one's actually getting paid to race their bikes. Like I would never yep. consider myself a pro. Yep. Uh, I just race <laughs> in the UCI one, two levels. And it's kind of weird that we throw it all together um, when really, yeah, very few people are actually getting paid to to race their bikes,
1: I definitely fall in that boat as well. I think my best season, I didn't quite break even as a as a pack <laughs> fodder cross country pro. Mid pack was pretty good at the national level, and then you have a good regional results here and there.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, a good season for me. Like I loved Crits, so that's where the money was at for me. You know, if I walked away with three grand at the end of the summer, I was pretty stoked. Oh, I um, never saw
1: that that sort of money. And Crits, yeah. Crits always terrified me. It's a certain attitude that you have to have going into a crit, like a fearlessness that I, I don't know, mountain biking always felt safer for me.
2: It is, it is. And I, I quit racing after getting injured too many times. Like you can only hit your uh, head so many times. And, you know, if, if I list my, my laundry list of injuries, it's it's definitely evident that, uh yeah, crit racing is, is rather dangerous and asphalt is hard and, you know, trees don't jump out at you, whereas racers may.
1: Yeah, and uh, pavement is like sandpaper when you're skidding across it in spandex.
2: Yeah, there's not a lot of protection there, um, but it was all, it was all good fun. And you know, I, I wish I'd gotten into it earlier in my life, but I had a, a lot of fun during my twenties and early thirties.
1: What did you love about it?
2: Uh, I liked the the challenge of like the the personal level, like how fit can I be, how strong can I get, um, and then there's the direct correlation between what you put in that that you get out. Um, Mm -hmm. and then especially with crit racing, I liked, uh, the team tactics. I liked the aggressiveness. Like I was definitely that idiot that went like super hard on the front on the first lap, just trying to get as many people off the back and then like would go for preem after after preem and then in the last two laps found that I had no legs left and (laughs) someone else had to (laughs) finish it up. But, um, yeah, I I liked the aggressiveness. I liked, I am really a team sports person and I think road racing, uh, doesn't get enough credit for the team sport that it is. And I think, mm. like, personally, not to get on like a, a whole other side spiel, but in, in no, Olympic No, let's do it. Racing, let's do it.
1: Go there. <laughs> in Go Olympic there.
2: racing, like, why does only one person get a gold medal? Like, in soccer, the mm. whole team gets a gold medal. And I think, uh, you know, road racing especially is such a team sport that everyone should be getting a medal. It's only, you know, six or seven medals versus 11. So, um, yeah, that's all the- yeah.
1: It's one of the things that's nice about the Grand Tours. There's lots of ways to win. There's the points, there's the stages, there's the GC, there's the most aggressive rider. Mm -hmm. So something more subjective. There's all these different ways in which to be acknowledged, but I'm definitely with you. It would be quite a feat to show up at an Olympic level road race solo. And
2: And win it, yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah no one to defend you no one to pull you up you'd have to be very very lucky and also be doing a lot of riding on people's wheels the entire time yeah and i think as doing, a racer i work.
2: enjoyed that you know i enjoyed the team aspect i enjoyed the the collective effort it took to to win the race sure one person was the first across the line but it took all of us to to get that person there and like there's to me as a as a racer there's few things as as beautiful as as a well executed Uh, lead out at the end of the race, you know, like where everyone has a role, everyone, you know, executes it perfectly, like a a little team train, like those things don't happen very often on the, on the non, you know, world tour level. And it's really, it feels amazing as a, as a racer to be part of that.
1: I've had limited crit racing experience and you note about the intensity of it. There are a few things more intense because not only do you have the, the digging really deep not just at the end, but every single time a gap opens up or every single time there's a break. And it's such a short, tight circuit and a short duration of an event that you really can't let anything open up. And people can sustain a lot more over 30 minutes to an hour than they can over the course of a four hour road race or a long gravel race. And there are curbs and there are other people and there are bottles and there are people taking shady lines. And that person who just passed you is on a trajectory where there's no way they're going to be able to come around the corner without hitting the outside curb on the other side, especially at the early levels like cat four or cat three, where you have strong riders coming over from other disciplines oh. and just don't have the chops.
2: Yeah, I did a I did a, a number of, of races in, in the men's field just to get more uh racing my legs and you know the the groups tend to be bigger but also very varied. You know, I'd be running around the course yeah. with like 80 dudes and maybe two women in there and be like terrified of, of the experience. And at the same time like that getting that chariot effect, like having that many people around you, you're kind of just like kind of going with the flow and and being dragged around the course which was kind of fun too but I think it's a pure adrenaline rush and I feel like I'm too old for that now (laughs) trying to hold Mm. those kind of efforts my heart rate doesn't go up that high anymore I mean it used to go up pretty easily over 200 and I think now I'd be on the sidelines vomiting if I (laughs) hit 200.
1: That's almost hummingbird level.
2: Yeah yeah you know young and fit and yeah, I miss that. I think I miss being that fit. I do not miss having to put in the kind of effort to, to be that fit.
1: Well, and more recently, you've been doing a lot with gravel. Is most of your riding gravel at this point?
2: Yeah, and I've always done gravel, like back when we just called it road bikes off-road. You know, there wasn't any special mm-hmm. gear. It was riding 23s over gravel. And
1: yeah, uh, yeah,
2: I've always liked gravel and adventuring. I've always liked being underbiked. Um, so I've been doing gravel for a long time, and I think uh, I've definitely since quitting uh, racing I've done mostly off-road. I think nowadays, if I have like two hours to kill, I'll most definitely ride through the forest rather than go on a road ride.
1: You're based currently in Portland? In Portland. Yeah. So yeah. you have fantastic outdoors right out your door in the Portland area and decent bike infrastructure as well. At least by yeah. by our U.S. standards.
2: Yeah, I mean, I chose so I live in a in a neighborhood called Saint John's, and I I chose that specifically because I go over across the bridge and I'm in the, in Forest Park, which is a a really big and I think the longest trail there is 30 miles or so. So it's like it's nice. a, a really big forested area with gravel roads and yeah, I'm I'm there all the time. Uh, I also really got into mountain biking after I quit racing, so you know, like all all mountain. Uh, I used to do mostly XC and. Definitely been working on my skills and uh, since quitting, I just it's nice to be away from cars. I think just it's, it's the, <laughs> the of that.
1: Yeah, I think that in addition to the exploratory element of it, it is one of the things that led me to transition to primarily gravel riding, and I do think it's a major reason why gravel cycling has taken off in general. Not only are the bikes really versatile, so if you're only going to have one bike, well, you can do all these different things. But then also, I remember reading a study um, some years ago, a university study that was looking at the reasons that people cite for not riding more, and safety is always number one by far. Um, I think that study was maybe eight or nine years ago. So in a few places, the infrastructure has gotten a little bit better, but still not enough. And the attitudes of drivers have gotten better, but still you get out of a certain zone of safety and you still have people angry at you for being on the road.
2: Yeah. I mean, like, as a lifelong commuter, I've been hit quite a few times. I got hit twice during the pandemic alone uh, while riding Jeez. around town. And so, uh, it, to say, yeah, I understand the safety thing 100%. Like you don't uh, want to take your life in your own hands when you're out riding and uh, it, it's, it's a big problem in the US that the infrastructure is still so lacking. And on one hand, you're telling people to, you know, go get on your bike and be more sustainable and healthy. And at the same time, they're not offering a lot of uh, insurances in terms of, you know, uh, infrastructure and whatnot to, to make that happen. Yeah.
1: Now, I'm, I'm curious, as a journalist, what have been some of the areas that you've found most interesting to report on or that, you know, you've been able to dive into as a consequence of having that credential?
2: Hmm. Uh, I'm, I always love people. I, I, I like to know what makes them tick, you know, especially those people on, on like the, the very top end of the sport, like what makes them tick? How, how are they able to do this? And at the same time, uh, this year, one of the things I've been really interested in is, um, e-bikes in terms of like the, the regulations around, um, Lithium-ion uh, batteries and and the, the fact mm-hmm. that there's so many fires and then the legislation around it and which there is none yet but that's coming and so uh, looking into a bit more of where these bags are coming from and and what it takes to to control these these devices a bit more has been very interesting and it's not something that gets a lot of reads or gets clicks and whatnot but it's something I find very interesting because it'll have a lot of uh, repercussions, I think, in in the next couple of years, as to which e are on the market, which products you can and cannot buy, and uh, hopefully the safety of it all.
1: What are some of the things that you've uncovered in that exploration?
2: Well, the, the fact that there is absolutely, at the moment, no legislation whatsoever uh, for the consumer. So you can buy whatever you can find on the internet, and there's mm-hmm. there's no guarantee that it's not going to set your house on fire there's no safety around it and that's that's changing right now new york city is currently uh considering banning the sale of secondhand or uh like on uh tested products which would have massive repercussions because there's like sixty five thousand delivery workers in uh, new york city alone and these people mm-hmm. are mostly relying on e-bikes to do their jobs right it's their livelihood and so the moment you you control these products, it, it'll have a financial impact on these people as well because, well, third party testing and safety devices it costs more on the on the manufacturers and therefore it'll have a higher price tag price tag for the consumer as well. Um, but at the same time, you know they are also dealing with two hundred fires already this year, um, specifically just, related just to just the city of New York. Yeah, just the city of New York, relating to um e-mobility devices like e-bikes, e-scooters, hoverboards, e-unicycles, that kind of stuff. Which is a lot. You know, that's a lot for one city, specifically around these mobility devices.
1: Sure, especially when you have such immense density. So a fire in New York City is not exactly. a standalone house. That's oftentimes a building with dozens of families and a lot of people get displaced.
2: Yeah, luckily they've they've only I should say that in in quotation marks they've had six fatalities and and over 130 uh, injuries related to those fires, so relatively speaking, that's not a high number, but it's it's something that could be prevented with proper legislation. So I think for me, what's interesting is just like the the, the concept is that you can just import products that don't get tested, and you know people will buy them because it's popular and it's it's uh, affordable, and and there's a reason you know, items cost as much as, as they do. And you know, as as someone who uh, creates consumer goods. So yeah, anyway, that's that's a long winded way of saying that's been a very interesting uh, fashion project of mine.
1: Well, on that pati- particular topic, I know that there's, there's also kind of a cultural backlash against, say, in New York City, these e-bike service providers out doing deliveries. And if you look at who it is that is taking on those jobs? Generally, immigrants. Generally, it's the first opportunity that they have in order to survive and make a living. Getting a foundation here, so it's not as easy as simply we're going to ban all these things. Some, it's somebody's livelihood.
2: And you it, might like, have as you said, it's a it's a culture issue. It's a class issue. It's it's not not as simple as like, well, these items are unsafe, so we'll just ban them.
1: And that kind of speaks to broader issues that we could talk about in the bike space. Like we have this concept of a sidewalk bicycle. A more pejorative way of saying it would be a bicycle shaped object. So these are bikes that are generally built to a very low standard, generally sold through non specialty retail, poorly assembled. And even if they were well assembled, generally of parts that are of questionable quality, so poor braking, things like this. And they aren't required to hold up to the same standards as a bicycle that you buy at a bike shop that is designated for commuter use or other sorts of use. And in the more premium end of the spectrum, which for a lot of people who aren't cyclists would be any bike that's more than three, $400, there's detailed ISO, uh, International Standards Organization criteria for testing that. But that's another example of the same thing where, well, you could require that all bikes be built to a certain standard, but then new bikes would be inaccessible to lower income demographics. Though, frankly, I think another outcome of that would probably be that you see more refurbishing of better quality, older used bikes. Yeah. And so that could be a net positive, especially given that they're likely to hold up a lot better.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: So so that's another area.
2: Yeah. I mean, to that, like, I get asked that a lot, and and we've are about to enter another recession. Um, it's it's apparent in other countries already, and and we're headed that way as well. And and so, a big topic becomes budget bikes. Like, how much do you spend on a bike? And mm-hmm. new bikes that are of a certain budget, <laughs> I always tell people go go shop for a a used bike and and refurbish it. You're you're better off than a cheap brand new bike, and There, I think for a long time, there was this, this rather like attitude towards buying secondhand uh, products, especially, you know, around carbon bikes, like people were worried that they were broken or cracked. And I think there's a huge misconception around carbon specifically in, in terms of the strength and like a carbon bike, if it doesn't, if it's not cracked, will last you an entire lifetime. Like they don't deteriorate, like, you know, metals will corrode and the resin in carbon doesn't necessarily Break apart. Like if maintained well, a carbon bike will last your lifetime. The end, right? You sure it breaks, and you have to maybe get it checked over by uh, an expert. But I think uh, now that we have been in this carbon age for a bit longer, there's there's nothing wrong with a used carbon bike.
1: I think that that is often true. There's a couple of challenges there though with a metal bike. If there's something wrong with it, you generally see it, unless it's cracking, uh, and and even a crack you'd be able to see. But you'd be able to see that with a carbon bike too. But what you wouldn't be able to see is an impact that causes delamination in a tube, but doesn't result in visual cracking or damage. Um, The construction has gotten much, much better. So they are vastly more reliable, but there's been this push for as light as possible, which means there's not a lot of buffer and there's a lot of higher modulus carbons that are not as impact resistant. So I agree with you that the concerns are overblown, But at the same time, actually, this is something that I was talking to Kaylee Fretz about when he was on, not too long ago, the merits of metal bikes. And I think that, especially on the more economical end of the spectrum, it would be great to see more steel bikes.
2: Oh, for sure. I love... I, I myself, steal steel roadie, I, I, th- I, l- I would love to have a titanium bike for sure. Um, I mm-hmm. just think that from a sustainability point of view, for the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years, we've been cranking out one carbon bike after another and yeah. they're not being recycled uh, because, mm-hmm. well, you can, but it's very, very cost prohibitive to... Um, try to get around the re- resin and recycle that carbon. And so mm-hmm. I think I would rather see some of these older frames be picked up and, and reused in one way or another, um, you know, slap a new group set on and it's a good bike. I'm also um, privileged in that in Portland, we have a great company called Rockus Composites. And mm-hmm. they, uh, for for a fee, but it's not a significant fee, they will scan your carbon frame to make sure there aren't any uh, cracks or whatever that, that you can't see um, simply with your eyeballs.
1: That's a great service and one that if anyone has access to, especially if they're buying secondhand or if they've crashed, absolutely worth it. The cost of not doing it is potentially nothing or potentially catastrophic.
2: Yeah, yeah. And I think I'm I'm more worried about people buying these really cheaply made carbon bikes because they're like, it's carbon and it'll be good. And I'm like, (laughs) there is such a thing as bad carbon. And uh, budget bikes that just... um, yeah, they don't stand the test of time, whereas good carbon bikes will, like I said, last your lifetime. Uh, obviously, you know, metal is is this is the safer bet, but um, yeah, we we just have so many carbon frames out there right now, and I just don't don't see them being used, ending up in landfill. I don't know i think that's one of the things if i could ask the industry to do anything it's to be a bit more uh sustainable in in what they crank out and and looking for the opportunities to recycle some of the products that they create
1: there is talk about this within the industry craig was at the people for bikes summit Mm. and there was a lot of talk around sustainability may have been more around packaging and the like being discussed there some of this is the facilities haven't existed so carbon recycling for example you need specialized facilities Fortunately, there's new ways in which recycled carbon can be utilized because it is a degraded material, right? So you're not going to get the long, pure fibers that you're getting purely homogenous resin with and so on. So you need to be able to create forged carbon components and the like, and you're starting to see that. Um, But that whole recycling infrastructure, like all recycling infrastructure, for the most part in this country is not keeping up with the sheer amount of stuff that we're creating and discarding
2: no absolutely not and uh i think especially after this you know uh right before um gravel got real big i think the industry was just sitting on on thousands of of car like mid-level carbon bikes with with 10-speed group sets and luckily <laughs> in some ways luckily the um pandemic created um this this delay in 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 the um in in getting new components and i think that that forced people to go back and be like can we use this nine or ten speed group set and there's an interesting amount of of nine and seven speed group sets on the market right now that just like got picked up because they were laying around and uh you see this especially in in uh super adventure bikes or e-bikes where they use older group sets and i think it's Mm. great because we we need to use the the things that we've produced
1: you've been following some of the supply chain Uh, Of course. Of course. Yeah.
2: yeah. I mean, that's been the story for the last few years for the industry. And, uh, it it is struggle. I, I can't imagine being one of those businesses that, that relies on, uh, you know, uh, pretty much anything at the moment, but, uh, seeing, see, I think it's, it's really fun to see some innovations happening around, um, using the stuff that we already have. And, uh, there's a lot of you know maybe I'm just a super bike nerd, but a lot of different ways you can get more gears out of a you know, seven speed derailleur or like you know using microshift and, and using all the different um uh, like innovative uh, little handy tools out there to, to make what's old new again.
1: Yeah, 100% with you there. And some of the organizations that we've sought to support as a company have been around taking old bikes and making them new again.
2: Yeah, uh, and down tube shif- shifters. I've been seeing a lot of those and and just like old friction <laughs> shifters being used again, which I thought was very fun because uh, it's a cheap way to build an adventure bike. You know, you just go with with uh, straight up brake levers, no shifting in the, in in your handlebars, which leaves more room for bags and whatever else. And then... Um, little bar end shifters or downtube shifters, which never thought I'd see those come back again.
1: Yeah, also provides a lot more options in terms of what you can spec because there's really only three major players in that space currently, SRAM and Shimano being the dominant two.
2: What, uh, what's the coolest thing you've seen done with a, with a thesis frame?
1: We did have a rider do this really stunning metallic flake paint job with a painter out of the Boulder, Denver area. So those sorts of customizations have been neat. Otherwise, we have a lot of people who've done extended bikepacking trips. We have a channel in an online community that we helped to set up, which is dedicated to bikepacking. So there have been whole reports on people's setups, and that's been really cool to see. One that has become normal at this point, but I think that we were relatively early with was dropper posts. So Mm. had a, a dropper post and second wheel sets. So had a hypothesis early on that people would have a single bike for a lot of things. And about 50% of people got two wheel sets and pushing 90% of our riders have gotten dropper posts.
2: Really? That's, yeah. That's a surprises me. That's a, a large percentage of people. Um, do they actually use them? Like, Do they get shredded enough to where you need a, a dropper post?
1: I've seen several examples of folks that have either discarded the dropper or who were really concerned about weight. And so you're trying to figure out how to swap it easily. But in general, like the typical response was, yeah, game changer. And from me personally, especially living in the Bay Area, where there's so much fast and steep road descending, I'd use it all the time. The argument that I make is add, say, three quarters of a pound. Mm -hmm. But one, you're you're faster, more confident, less likely to crash in all of those technical or high speed sorts of situations. But then also to be able to scoot your butt off the back of the saddle, you need to often compromise your saddle height a little bit. And so that means that you're no longer setting up your bike for pure comfort, pure efficiency, pure performance. And so that three quarters of a pound, I'm 165, so I'm probably pushing let's say round up to 200 pounds with gear and so on. Three quarters of a pound is as a percentage less than half a percent. So am I getting half a percent more efficient on a climb because I'm in the right position? I think that that's pretty plausible. never mind you know, the rest of the time so that that's my pitch for droppers. I know that not everyone is sold on them but I, I think that it's uh, it is the thing that makes the bike that is otherwise really good on flat and smooth terrain something that you can get really rowdy with.
2: Yeah, I mean, I like to get rowdy on, on gravel bikes very much. It's it's kind of like my my favorite thing to do is see how far I can take it. Uh, to the end, I will say, uh, you know, I've mean I've come around. I mentioned this to you in the email, but I've come around on six fifty B's. Finally, that took mm-hmm. me a long time uh, to get. But having that actual rubber does does allow me to get uh, a little bit more rowdy than than on seven hundred C's.
1: Yeah, and I I had shared some thinking about why that might have been, but I'm curious, what did you find different and hard to adjust to switching from 700 to 650?
2: Uh, I think initially it was like, oh, this feels slow. And, um, Mm. you know, given my background, I I, I liked really quick and and fast responses and lively rides and it felt like it did the opposite. Like it became a bit more, more twitchy, which makes for a bit more engaging ride, but it just felt a little slower. Um, and it just, the handling was different than what I was used to on 700 seats, which also had to do with the, the tire width that was running, you know, going from, uh, 700 by maybe 40 to, you know, six fifty to 47. That's a huge difference in terms of like your, your rolling surface that you have and, and how that feels mm-hmm. around the corners. Um, but then it got real rainy and muddy and I was riding the, this, this rather, uh, you know, rudy. Mountain bikey terrain. And that's when I noticed the difference of like, oh, yeah, this really allows me to stay planted a bit better and and uh, maneuver these roots. But um, I also like it, it started off like, oh, I understand this from like a technical point of view. And then for comfort, it is really darn comfortable yeah. to just like crank out the miles on, on more rubber. And it just, it, yeah, it's cushy. And uh, I can see now why, you know, randomers and such opt for that that tire size, but it took me a while. I, I will say and maybe I'm just old school, but um, I finally got around to it.
1: I can definitely relate to at least the sensation of it potentially feeling a little bit slower rolling. And there's definitely circumstances. This is casing dependent as well, where you know, it very well may be, but at the same time, remember the first time you gave up 23s and put on 25s yeah. or 28s or 30s and how different that felt. And it's like, I'm not getting all of that that road feel. Yeah. It just feels slow all of a sudden, but data said otherwise. But, I mean, 650s have their place. There's a reason why a lot of racers in certain types of events run 700 by, I mean, in the case of Belgian Waffle Ride in San Diego, I think people are running like 32 slicks.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense, right? Like, it's if when you have that much uh, ground to cover and uh, a fair bit of road in that as well, I believe. Um, yeah. Yeah. You would opt for that. But yeah, I've I've come around. I'm hundred percent a six fifty B believer now. I do nice. think you need two wheel sets um for different different occasions. But yeah, it was it was a fun experiment for me this uh this fall.
1: When you say two wheel sets, you mean two six fifty wheel sets or or one seven hundred and one
2: six fifty? The latter, yeah. One 700 and yeah. one one six fifty. Yeah. There's yeah. definitely days that, you know, if I know I'm gonna go long, I, I just feel like I'm covering more ground and then, then I'll do that on a, a 700, but yeah, for my, my most, like my lunch rides that's up in, in, in the trails, that's definitely six fifties now. So
1: what else have you found surprising or delightful in terms of products or insight into the sport or experiences you've had of late?
2: Uh, Well, if sticking with gravel, I think we're starting to see a, a really broad spectrum of bikes that are either super capable have suspension you know there's an increasing amount of bikes with suspension and then on the other side the ones that are are really going for speed um where you basically have a road bike um that's that's slightly more capable you know so like if you want to go with specialized you've got the the new SCR with the the rear end suspension and front end suspension versus the Crux, which is, uh, you know, a very capable cyclocross bike, basically, and featherly light. And I think we're seeing more of that divide happening, which is pretty quick, given that gravel as a category hasn't been around for all that long. Um, and it's, it, I think it's a very interesting development just to see what people are going to go for and how much we're, we're differentiating between gravel racing and gravel adventuring and bikepacking and, like, the difference now like you can't just say gravel anymore you have to specify whether you're talking about gravel racing or or adventuring because those are two very different uh sides of the industry now which is it's interesting and it's really fun to watch um and i i think personally i like the adventure side from a tech nerdiness a bit more because we know what a fast road bike looks like and what it can do but like Mm -hmm. how capable can you make um a drop bar bike and how like watching people bring back rigid mountain bikes and and just like drawing on on uh old technology and 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 seeing things like redshift and connect with their suspension posts that you know remind me of soft ride and like it's just mm-hmm. from a tech point of view it's it's an interesting development and really fun to watch
1: it's kind of like um fashion in, in a way <laughs> like what's old is new i mean it's definitely radically better with composites and wide and tubeless and disc brakes in particular but in a lot of ways we're riding the original mountain bikes again
2: we totally are we're just riding you know those those (laughs) spring-loaded what were they canada's the ones with the the head tube springs
1: oh the head shock
2: yeah yeah which i mean future shock is that you know connect and redshift is basically a soft ride It's, it's just everything is is new again and it's really fun to watch. And I think what I geek out a lot more is just seeing what people are coming up with in their own shops and how people perhaps are learning for the first time to be a bit more hands-on and, and uh, mechanical and, and like exploring with their own setups. I mean, how many people don't know how to fix their own tire? Uh, and I think nowadays watching them experiment and building super machines, it's it's just really fun.
1: So given that we're kind of coming to the end of the year, favorite products of 2022 and then in a general sense products racing otherwise what are you most excited about in the new year
2: Yeah so my favorite products uh some of them are things that I bought myself or own like uh my Brompton was one I found on Craigslist which is super random but I I wanted something to travel with um that's compact and wouldn't require me having an extra bag or anything like that and uh, my Brompton and I have been to the Tour de France Femme together. We've been to the Netherlands, to London, to the Sacrosse World Championships. So that bike goes with me everywhere, which was a really fun uh, Craxus purchase that I didn't need, but has given me a lot of joy.
1: Are you doing uh, a lot of long rides on that? Or is it more getting around and being able to get that 20 miler in?
2: Yeah, yeah. Getting around. The It's not, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not very <laughs> comfortable. <laughs> Talk about yeah. like slow rolling, tiny, like try 16 try inch wheels. Like, no. Uh, but I mean, I've seen
1: fun. dispatches from people doing extended tours on a Brompton, which I've always found super impressive.
2: I mean, good on them. I like, I, I, <laughs> I applaud them. I I, don't enjoy that very much. Um, yeah. But it's been a great bike to travel with, and, and it's just a really silly, really fun purchase. Um, I also got a ultratonic cleaner for the first time which mm. is great for, uh, you know, the Pacific Northwest is really wet, really muddy. Um, our our gear gets just absolutely destroyed. And so keeping it clean uh, extends the, the lifetime of, of your components. And uh, that's really been a fun way to um, get, like, that super shiny, clean drivetrain.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, and that was just a birthday present, so it's not something that was sent to me to review. um. And then the best shoes I had were the Live uh, Matcha shoes. Um, they are bright purple. Uh, they look great. Everyone is always asking me about them. And I keep asking them to make them into a gravel shoe because I don't spend enough time on my road back anymore to wear them. Um, See go ahead.
1: Do you love them for their styling or some other elements? No, they're, of them. they're
2: a pure race shoe. Like you're locked in. They're some of the mm. stiffest shoes I've ever worn, but they also are an absolute head turner. Uh, yeah. So it's a two-for-one package. Um, and in the gravel side of things, uh, the Swalby RS tires were super impressive. Um, they're so fast and uh, I've yet to flat them, which is pretty incredible given A, my, my history, and B, uh, just how much I've written them.
1: What size are you running them in?
2: I have uh, 42s, I think. It's when I was running last. And I i mean, I took them with me traveling. Like I, I did the uh, Finland gravel, and mm-hmm. I did not know what I was getting myself into. And and so, getting a foul, like bringing a foul thread racy tire is a bit of a risk. Um, but they did really well, and uh, they're probably the best tires I've had in a while. And I'd say, in general, the market has gotten so much better like the it's so easy to set up tubeless tires now whereas like even two years ago i it was quite a struggle sometimes getting those seated in your in your garage yeah
1: yeah absolutely though i i will say um and this is a hobby horse i often jump on um you know road road tubeless hookless road tubeless scares me
2: <laughs> i tried to i i got a few to review this year and i I tried to see if I could make them explode, but I think I reached my like comfort level far before, or the end of my comfort level far before the tires did. So there's that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And then going into 2023, and this doesn't have to be gear, it can be events, it can be personal adventures. What are you excited about coming into the new year?
2: Uh, Yeah, I'm going to go even more into gravel and attending some more gravel events. So I'm very excited to return to Unbound and to do SPD gravel. There's talk about uh, me and a colleague of mine setting an FKT. So there's some really fun challenges. And um, since stepping away from racing and, uh, you know, getting married, buying a house, I've definitely spent less time on, on on the bike as I would like. So getting something to train for, for me personally, is, is uh, it's kind of exciting to get back to it.
1: By the way, congratulations on those milestones.
2: <laughs> Thanks. It was an exciting two years of the pandemic, yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, well, all right. Um, so where can people find you? On Twitter? Uh, you're at Cycling Weekly. How do, how do people get a hold of you or see what you're, what you're writing about?
2: Yeah, definitely on cyclingweekly.com. And then on social media, Rook is my handle across every platform, including the new ones that are popping up now that Twitter is taking a tumble.
1: All right. Well, Anne-Marie, it's a pleasure to finally sit down and properly chat and very much looking forward to seeing you at Sea Otter and other industry events now that that's a thing again and we can be out in the wild seeing each other. That's right. All right. Thanks for having me.
0: That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Gravel Ride Podcast. Big thanks to anne Mariah for having that conversation with Randall. I hope you guys learned a lot, and I hope you do follow her on Twitter and follow her work as North American editor at Cycling Weekly. Huge thanks to our friends at Athletic Greens. Remember, head on over to athleticgreens.com slash thegravelride to check out AG1 today. If you're interested in connecting with me or Randall, I encourage you to join the ridership. That's www.theridership.com. If you're able to support the podcast, you can visit buymeacoffee.com slash thegravelride where ratings and reviews are hugely important in us connecting with other gravel athletes from around the world. Until next time, I hope you're well, and here's to finding some dirt under your wheels.